0: Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks.
1: There's this sense of kind of mourning. So if a parent thinks that they have a daughter, but their child is really male identified, for example, there's this feeling of mourning the child I thought I had. And a lot of time, what that's really about is losing almost like an expectation of what the future will look like.
0: This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Dhruv. On this edition of Outcasting, we consider transgender youth who want to start medical transition at a relatively early age. Of course, parents often worry that their children may be too young to know what they really want. The medical transitions may include surgery and other medical treatments that can be difficult or impossible to undo. So what's the best answer? What options are available to transgender youth? Are there benefits to starting transition early? Are there disadvantages? And what kinds of considerations go into making these decisions? To begin to answer some of these questions, Outcaster Lauren talks with Dr. John Stever, a physician, and Dr. Matthew Oransky, a psychologist. Both doctors work at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York and help young transgender people with transitioning. This is the second part of a two-part series. When we left off last time, Lauren had asked Dr. Oransky about the benefits and disadvantages of early gender transition. Dr. Stever now continues the conversation.
2: A certain percentage of children, the younger kids, so you could take a group of, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds, might meet criteria for gender dysphoria perfectly, 100%. And then a certain percentage of them, as they mature, no longer persist in that thinking. And so the concern about starting, say, cross-gender hormones at an even younger age is that there might be somebody in that group who, as they get older, says, oh, actually, I don't think I fully understood the difference between, say, sexual orientation and gender identity. I am a boy. I happen to like other boys. I'm not really a girl. Now, the fear that I think medical people have, and and this may not be a valid reason, is that if I start somebody on estrogen at age 11, 12, and I give them breasts and I stunt their growth, so to speak, I have done them a big disservice later in life. And Again, this may be more of a theoretical thing than an actual real problem, but there is data to say that there are some people who do not persist in their thinking, and that is the fear, and that would be a reason to not start earlier and earlier and earlier.
3: Does medical transition ever completely relieve gender dysphoria? Dr. Oransky.
1: I'm not sure that I've ever seen anything completely relieve gender dysphoria, but I think that, you know, medical transition can often go a long way towards reducing it.
3: Some parents might hesitate when their young child wants to transition. How would you counsel them? Dr. Oransky.
1: Well, I think my first goal would be to understand what their hesitation is about. I think so some parents may feel as though they don't fully understand what the transition is or why their child wants to do it. And so I think then I would try to give them some education about gender dysphoria and what it means to be transgender and outcomes that we know about in terms of the success that a transition could bring. And then I think if the concerns were more of their own kind of like, cultural or personal or familial, religious beliefs, I would try to work with the family through family therapy to see if there was a way that the child could transition that would be comfortable for the parents. What we know through data, research, clinical experience is that family acceptance for youth, family acceptance is one of the most important things associated with positive mental health outcomes. So the reverse would be that, for example, family rejection is heavily associated with things like suicide attempts, homelessness, things like that. And so that we work very hard to try to understand the parents' hesitancy and kind of walk them through it to more of a place of acceptance. You know, another thing parents may benefit from is a support group with other parents whose children are transitioning or who want to transition.
3: Dr. Stever?
2: I often will say to parents, it's quite okay to say, I don't understand what's happening, but I love you, and I support you, and I'm here for you, and we'll go on all of this exploration together, and that can be very um, supportive for the kids, and uh, and I think them knowing that their families are on board like that, uh, even if they're not fully understanding what's happening, uh, is really important.
3: What do you do if parents are worried about their child's safety or health, Dr. Uransky?
1: I ask them more questions. I try to understand the origins of their concerns. You know, in a lot of ways, worries about safety make sense. You know, we see in the news in our communities that there can be increased bullying, victimization, harassment of a transgender individual. So what I try to do, you know, oftentimes parents will think, okay, worry about safety. You know, my job is to protect my child, and in order to do that, I have to convince them not to transition, and so. What I'll try to work with them to understand is that, yes, maybe their child is at an increased risk for certain being targeted in certain ways, but that is by far outweighed by the happiness and fulfillment that will come from being able to be their authentic self. You know, so I will help the parents see their job as more of, okay, once your child transitions or we will um, find new and increased ways to keep them safe within their new identity, whether that means working with the school on issues of bullying or things like that. Um, I think there are probably some environments where it would be a huge threat to safety to transition. Um, But we haven't yet, you know, we're based in New York City, we haven't yet encountered a situation in which we felt like we should say to the parents, you're right, it's too dangerous for your child to transition.
3: Dr. Stever? I would just add that a
2: lot of times that a person's own mental health can be the biggest threat to their health. So for somebody who's not supported and not allowed to transition at all. Many of them get very depressed, and we see in our program a lot of youth who have uh, histories of self-injurious behaviors. So if a parent says they're much safer by not doing this, I have to gently remind them that you can't be with this person 24-7, and constant depression constant feeling like you're in the wrong body, constant feeling misgendered can lead to some serious consequences. And so sometimes taking that leap and medically transitioning actually improves their health tremendously.
3: In your experience, do you think that young children are generally able to make such a major decision for themselves? And is there sort of a minimum age, Dr. Siever
2: That's a great question. I would say, unfortunately, there are some 14 year olds who are very mature and can make excellent informed decisions. And there are some 21 year olds who are very impulsive and make very poor decisions. So it is a conversation that we have with our youth and families about their ability to make decisions but i do sort of generally feel that around age 14 is when a lot of maturity generally happens and so i feel a little uncomfortable going much younger than age 14 for cross-gender hormones and i recognize that there may be people who are ready to do that But it is hard to predict sometimes uh, levels of maturity, levels of understanding. And so we currently have a fairly firm line in the sand. At uh, age 14, you can start working on getting your uh, cross-gender hormones.
3: Can going through puberty change a child's perception of their gender? Dr. Oransky? Dr. Stever talked a little
1: bit about people who meet criteria for gender dysphoria at a young age and then kind of outgrow it, or what the research will call desist from the diagnosis. And in my sense, a lot of that happens through going with puberty. You know, what the research will say is that gender dysphoria that persists into adolescence really gets heightened during puberty, and that the experience of your body changing will often heighten gender dysphoria and will, like, sometimes for some of the youth that we work with, solidify this notion that I am, quote-unquote, in the wrong body, or my body or has somehow betrayed me. You know, a lot of the bodies really, kind of male and, quote-unquote, male and female biological bodies, like, really diverge during pubertal development. And so I do think that that will often for people solidify this uh, gender identity or this sense of being transgender or at the very least increase the experience of gender dysphoria.
3: Dr. Stever?
2: I think Matt's correct that puberty brings on biologic changes that uh, the youth sometimes suddenly cannot hide or uh, wish away. I mean, pre children all sort of look remarkably similar. And so how you dress, how you wear your hair, what name you use, that's often all that's needed at that age. But once somebody starts to develop facial hair or develop breasts or start to menstruate, then some of these things bring the gender dysphoria into very sharp relief. And I think that's why we often see that people were pretty cool about life until puberty hit and then their changes became super obvious and could not be sort of denied by the person. And of course, as you get older and your thinking becomes more and more abstract, you have a deeper understanding of what gender is, what sexual orientation is, what your body is. So I think age and maturity does bring deeper understanding to many of these issues.
3: What are the consequences if they change their mind, Dr. Stever?
2: If somebody has started, for example, on testosterone and has dropped their voice and developed some facial hair, those things don't go away. For the trans women who have developed some breast tissue, that's not going to disappear. So there are some changes that are permanent and, you know, only a surgery or you know, laser hair removal would change some of those things back. That's why we try to be cautious and thorough about starting somebody on hormones. I always find it really important to have that discussion about what these meds will and won't do, what are effects that are permanent and not permanent, partially because many youth, when they're younger, really see like, oh, I'm gonna start testosterone and it's gonna be, my life will be perfect trying to inform patients and families about the limits of some of these medicines is really important because I don't want to have to deal with somebody changing their mind. Now, somebody could say, you know what, I'm tired of needles, I'm tired of taking pills, and I want to take a break. That's great. There's no problem with that at all. But what I'd like to avoid is somebody saying, you know, I don't really, you know, I want to go back. That could be a problem if somebody has some serious changes that have already happened.
3: Dr. Ransky?
2: Yeah, I guess the only thing I'd add is that it's um, it's a big worry
1: of people. What if someone changes their mind? But in reality, it's something that we've seen very infrequently.
3: So you'd say it's not common that people will change their minds?
1: Not
2: not in my experience. Oh, yeah. it is. It is not common at all.
0: This is Outcasting, public radio's LGBTQ youth program produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Lauren is talking with Dr. John Stever, a physician, and Dr. Matthew Oransky, a psychologist, about the issues faced by transgender youth when they want to begin medical transition. Both Dr. Stever and Dr. Oransky work at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York.
3: As we're talking about medical transition for young people, tell us about puberty blockers and how they relate to gender transition. Dr. Stever?
2: Puberty blockers are a class of medications that work at the level of the brain, and they basically block the message going from the brain down to the gonads so that a person does not generate either estrogen or testosterone. And they were originally developed for precocious puberty, but for gender work, they're a terrific way of putting puberty on hold. So you might have a 10-year-old who's starting to develop breasts and nobody is sure whether the parents might have some questions or some doubts or the kid might be very immature. And so like, are we going to start testosterone on a 10-year-old? No, this is where puberty blockers can come in and be very effective because basically they put a pause on puberty and you can do them for a period of time and then if somebody chooses to stop them and let their natural puberty continue that will happen because they don't have permanent effects or somebody may say you know do it for a few years and get sort of ready and prepped for cross gender hormone replacement therapy and switch over to the puberty that they desire. So they have a great role. They're very safe, they're very effective, and they basically put puberty on hold until the family can get sorted out, the patient can get, you know, mature enough to provide informed consent. So they have a, a great role. Their biggest disadvantage is that they are extremely expensive. So, insurance can be a tough thing to get to pay for them.
3: What do you do if a child is clearly suffering from dysphoria, but they are unable to come out due to their own safety or how the people around them will react? Dr. Oransky? Yeah, that's a great
1: question. And these are some of the young people at just sort of highest risk of all sorts of negative outcomes. We have a few ways that we deal with that. You know, at our center, we young people are allowed to seek the mental health support services with or without parental permission. And that's true hopefully of some other places. So they can certainly seek counseling with an affirming therapist to help them sort of manage their reactions and dysphoria, but then also the what it feels like to be in such a unaccepting or a suffocating environment. I think even more than that, what can be really helpful is building a supportive community of peers. So one of the things that we, try very hard to do is to have a transgender support group for youth and so a lot of the young people we work with who can't come out at school or to their parents will regularly attend our support groups or social activity programming and then another thing that i can be really i think can be really helpful is to help the youth find some like adult role models who can provide them with some guidance or some hope about what their life can be like in the future.
3: Dr. Stever?
2: I think that's right. I mean, our support group is an incredibly important part of our program. I'm allowed as a medical doctor to see youth in uh, medical care, but only for certain things that the state allows. So when you're talking about pregnancy testing or STDs or substance use counseling, I can see a youth without their parents, but unfortunately gender and hormones is not really one of those things that the state of New York allows me to uh, see the youth without their parents for. So I have met many kids who want to learn more about it. and We do some of the blood work and we get a little physical in, but we don't get very far without parental permission, but I think knowing that our program exists and I refer the youth that I see to some of our primary care social workers for some immediate support and then we get them in to the group is uh, a real a real benefit.
3: I'm just wondering, though, youth who don't have parental consent, they can still join the support group or get mental health counseling, right?
2: Correct. Yes, that's correct. Okay.
3: What are the most common reactions that parents have to their child being trans or wanting to medically transition? Dr. Aransky?
1: It's a great question. I I think, you know, some of the common reactions include support. So we have parents who are of youth that we work with who are not surprised, who are supportive and open, or even if they're supportive and opening, they may be dealing with some of their own confusion, sort of this mourning of the child they thought they had or a future they were picturing, but also at the end of the day, pretty warm and concerning. Then we have other parents who are less supportive because they're more confused or they have less information or their children have actually been less open to them in terms of explaining what's going on and what they mean by being transgender. And those parents are pretty easy to work with in terms of giving them the information they need and explaining everything to them and helping, guiding the teenagers to talk to their parents in terms of what they're looking for with their transition. And then we have parents who are sort of more intractably resistant to this idea of having a transgender child or having a child who wants to transition. And those parents we attempt to work with on more of a long-term basis to build room for acceptance within their families. So sort of those are kind of the ranges of reactions that we see.
3: Dr. Stever?
2: Yeah, I agree with Matt. I mean, I think it's extremely heartwarming when a family comes in and their biggest goal is to support their child. And, you know, you can see it when they struggle with name and pronouns. You know, what I always tell the kids is, your parents are here. They're supporting. You know, it's okay. You can cut them a little slack if they mess up on the pronouns once in a while. And those are, are wonderful moments when parents like that. And, uh, and it is uh, also sad moments when some parents are just like, absolutely not. I won't do it. Uh, and, and those are challenging families because many of them, you can see that the kids are suffering, but the parents really struggle with how to support them. And for some of them, uh, they, they have a hard time with that.
3: Is it common for a family or loved ones to feel that the child they once knew is no longer the same person? If so, how do you help them understand that their child is not becoming a different person, they're just becoming the real version of themselves? Dr. Aransky? It's
1: a great question. I think it is common. There's this sense of kind of a mourning. So if a parent thinks that they have a daughter, but their child is really... Male identified, for example, there's this feeling of mourning the child I thought I had. And a lot of time what that's really about is losing almost like an expectation of what the future will look like if that makes sense. And so helping them understand that they're not really losing a person, but losing this kind of vision of the future and that their child is as you put it so well, becoming a more real version of themselves and making that self known to the parent in a really real and vulnerable way. That being said, I do think that a lot of parents need, whether or not they are really losing someone, they're losing a vision or an expectation or a belief and that they need to have that process of experiencing those feelings and experiencing that morning because it helps them move on better. My one main piece of advice would be do that when your child's not around. (laughs) Um, uh, Because I think this is one area where I say don't hash this out in family therapy. Talk about it with your friends or in a parent support group because I think it can feel really invalidating or rejecting to talk about that so directly with the kid.
3: What would you say to someone say, an insurance company, who says that medical transition is merely cosmetic. Dr. Stever?
2: I would say that they're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Medical transitioning is not just about a cosmetic look. It's about having your body match how you see yourself. So you know, when you wake up in, in the morning and you snap on the bathroom light and the face that looks back at you does not match the face that you see yourself at, that's, that's difficult. That's hard on everybody. And so these kinds of medications and procedures are not so much cosmetic in the traditional sense, but they are gender affirming. Now, you could make the argument that the difference between estrogen to create breasts and then a silicone implant to create breasts is different. But both of them, from the perspective of the trans woman, really are helping to affirm who that person is. And I think most patients, most clients, only want to do enough That helps them transition and pass and align their bodies with how they feel. I don't think many people are addicted to surgery. So it it is not a cosmetic thing. It It is much deeper than that for these people.
1: I would say also that we have evidence to say that this is the appropriate medical intervention to treat gender dysphoria, that other interventions do not work in the same way.
3: Is there anything you'd like to talk about regarding transition for young people that we haven't talked about yet? Dr. Stever, you can start.
2: Uh, I think we've covered most things. I I think mostly I would encourage people who are thinking about these issues, to reach out to either their family physician or if they're in counseling, reach out to their counselors, uh, to their therapists, and start to talk about these issues. I find that oftentimes when people are given a voice, when they're able to name what it is that that is bothering them. Once you give a voice to the pain that they're experiencing, the gender dysphoria, that can be immensely helpful. So if if there are people out there who are thinking about exploring these issues or are curious or just not sure, bring these issues up. There's no harm to talking to a professional to say, you know, I don't uh, I don't know. Um, I sometimes feel like I'm in the wrong body, but sometimes I feel like I'm okay. And other times I don't know. And I think communication and seeking help is really important and is good for their mental health in the long run.
3: Dr. Oransky, is there anything that you'd like to add?
1: Yeah, I think the one thing I'd like to add is that, you know, I would like to see a day where my role in this was very limited. We work with a lot of youth who have pretty high rates of depression, anxiety, suicidality, substance use, things like that. And it's usually related to rejection from family, peers, social supports, communities. And so that a lot of the real work that needs to be done is outside of the walls of our clinic setting, but really to make all environments for youth more inclusive of those who are gender diverse. And so it's really a whole societal intervention that we need that would hopefully make our role smaller.
3: This has been a fascinating conversation. Dr. Stever and Dr. Oransky, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: It was a pleasure to speak
2: with you.
0: Outcaster Lauren has been talking with Dr. Matthew Oransky, a psychologist, and Dr. John Stever, a physician. Both doctors work at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. This has been part two of a series on transgender youth and early medical transition. The entire series is available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Andrea, Dante, Lauren, Lucas, Max, Nico, Quinn, and me, Dhruv. Our assistant producer is Josh Valley, and our executive producer is Mark Sophis Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, Call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Drew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.